0: Welcome to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair, William Thackeray's deliciously satirical take on a money-mad society set against the backdrop of the Napoleonic Wars. We're delighted you're back for another novel in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. If this is your first time with us, you can find all the other novels in our series plus new episodes at classicalfm.ca or through your favorite podcast app. Now, let's turn to Marilyn as she reads William Thackeray's Vanity Fair.
1: Chapter 47 Gaunt House All the world knows that Lord Stain's town palace stands in Gaunt Square. "'Peering over the railings and through the black trees into the central garden of the square, "'you see a few miserable governesses with one-faced pupils wandering round and round it. House occupies nearly a side of the square. "'The remaining three sides are composed of tall, dark houses "'with little light behind their windows and with brass plates, doctors, banks, etc. "'The square has a dreary look.' Nor is my Lord Stain's palace less dreary, with its vast front hall, rustic columns and chimneys, out of which there seldom comes any smoke now, for the present Lord Stain lives at Naples. A hundred yards down New Gaunt Street is a little modest back door, which you would not distinguish from any other. But many a closed carriage has stopped at that door, and many a lady has been seen going in and out for it leads to the famous petit appartements of Lord Steyne, one fitted up in ivory and white satin and another in ebony and black velvet. There is a little banqueting room and a private kitchen, Besides his town palace, the Marquis has various other castles. Castle Strongbow in Ireland, Gaunt Castle in Wales, the Grand Gauntly Hall in Yorkshire, and Stillbrook in Hampshire, which was my lord's farm, a humble residence, of which we all remember the wonderful furniture which was sold on my lord's death. The Marchioness of Steyne was of the ancient family of the Caerleons, Marquesses of Camelot who have preserved the old Catholic faith ever since the conversion of the venerable Druid, their first ancestor. Pendragon is the title of the eldest son of the house. The sons have been called Arthurs, Uthers, and Caradox from time immemorial. Their heads have fallen in many a loyal conspiracy. Elizabeth chopped off the head of the Arthur of her day, a recreant of James's time was momentarily perverted from his religion, and the fortunes of the family somewhat restored. But the Earl of Camelot, in the reign of Charles, returned to the old creed of his family, and they fought and ruined themselves for it, as long as there was a Stuart left to head a rebellion. The beautiful Lady Mary Carleon was brought up at a Parisian convent before being married, or sold, it was said, to Lord Gaunt, who won vast sums from the lady's brother. The Earl of Gaunt's famous duel with the Count de la Marche was because of that officer's pretensions to the hand of Lady Mary. She was married to Lord Gaunt while the count lay ill of his wound, and came to dwell at Gaunt house, and to be admired at court. But she was scared by the wild pleasures and gaieties of the society into which she was flung, and, after she had borne a couple of sons, shrank away into a life of devout seclusion. "'No wonder that my Lord Stain, who liked pleasure and cheerfulness, was not often seen after their marriage alongside this trembling, silent, superstitious, unhappy lady. It was said that Lord Stain made her sit down to table with women of doubtful reputation.' in a word, with his reigning favorite. It was also said by some that Lady Mary would not be so submissive unless the Marquis had some mysterious sore to hold over her. Between the Marchioness and her children was the cruel barrier of difference of faith. The very love which she felt for her sons only made the pious lady more fearful and unhappy. The gulf which separated them, was impassable. During his son's youth, Lord Stain had no better sport after dinner than in setting the boy's tutor, the Reverend Mr. Trail, on her ladyship's priest, Father Mole. He cried, Bravo, Latimer! <laughs> well said, Loyola. Alternately, he promised Mole a bishopric if he would convert, and vowed he would use all his influence to get Trail a cardinal's hat if he would secede. Although the fond mother hoped that her youngest and favorite son would be reconciled to her church, a sad and awful disappointment awaited her. Her elder son, Lord Gaunt, married the Lady Blanche Thistlewood, a daughter of the noble house of Bearacres previously mentioned in this history. A wing of Gaunt House was assigned to this couple. Lord Gaunt, however, was little at home. Disagreeing with his wife and borrowing money beyond the very moderate sums which his father allowed him, the marquis knew every shilling of his son's debts. To my Lord Gaunt's dismay and the chuckling delight of his enemy and father, the Lady Gaunt had no children. So his brother, Lord George Gaunt, was desired to return from Vienna to marry the Honourable Joan, only daughter of John Jones, First Baron Helvellyn and head of Jones Brown and Robinson, Bankers. From this marriage sprang several sons and daughters. The marriage at first was a happy and prosperous one. My Lord George Gaunt could write well, spoke French fluently was a fine waltzer, and seemed likely to become a highly-ranked diplomat. His wife's wealth let her hold splendid receptions in those continental towns where her husband's diplomatic duties led him. Then sudden rumors arrived of his extraordinary behavior. At a grand diplomatic dinner, he had started up and declared that a pate de foie gras was poisoned, He went to a ball with his head shaved and dressed as a capuchin friar. It was not a fancy dress ball. People whispered that something strange ran in the family. His wife and children returned to Gaunt House. Lord George gave up his post and was supposedly sent to Brazil, but people knew better. He never returned from that Brazil expedition, never died there, never lived there never was there at all. Brazil, said the gossips, is a cottage at St. John's Wood where George Gaunt has a keeper who has invested him with the order of the straight Jacket. These are the kinds of epitaphs which men give one another in Vanity Fair. Twice or thrice a week in the early morning his poor mother went to see him. Sometimes he laughed at her. Sometimes she found him dragging about a child's toy. Sometimes he knew her and Father Mole. Oftener he forgot her, as he had done wife, children, love, ambition, and all but his dinner hour. The poor mother had brought this taint from her own ancient race. The evil had broken out once or twice in her father's family. The dark mark of doom was on the threshold. The absent lord's children, meanwhile, grew on, quite unconscious that the doom was over them, too. Their stricken grandmother trembled to think that these were the inheritors of their father's shame, and watched sickening for the day when the awful ancestral curse should come down on them. This dark presentiment also haunted Lord Stain. "'He tried to lay the ghost in red seas of wine and jollity "'and lost sight of it sometimes in the crowd of his pleasures. "'But it always came back to him when alone "'and grew more threatening with the years. "'I have taken your son,' it said. "'Why not you? "'I may tap you on the head tomorrow.' And away go pleasures and honors, feasts and friends, fine horses and houses, in exchange for a prison, a keeper, and a straw mattress. And then my lord would defy the ghost, for he knew of a remedy by which he could balk his enemy. So there was splendor and wealth, but no great happiness, behind the tall portals of Gaunt House. "'Had my lord not been so great, perhaps few would visit him. "'But in Vanity Fair, the sins of very great personages are indulged. "'Some squeamish moralists might be sulky with Lord Stain, "'but they were glad enough to come when he asked them. "'Lord Stain is really too bad,' Lady Slingstone said. "'But everybody goes, and of course I shall see that my little girls come to no harm.' "'His morals are bad,' said little Lord Southdown to his sister, "'who had heard terrific stories from her mamma about the doings at Gaunt House. "'But hang it, he's got the best champagne in Europe.' "'And as for Sir Pitt Crawley, that pattern of decorum, "'he never for one moment thought of not going. "'Where you see such persons as the Countess of Slingstone, "'you may be pretty sure, Jane.' the baronet would say, that we cannot be wrong. The great rank of Lord Steyne means he can command people in our station. Besides, George Grant and I were diplomats together. Chapter 48 In which the reader is introduced to the very best of company. At last, Becky's kindness and attention to the head of her husband's family were destined to meet with a reward, one which she coveted eagerly. If she did not wish to lead a virtuous life, she wished to have a virtuous reputation, something no lady can possess until she has put on a train and feathers and has been presented to her sovereign at court.' "'From that august interview they come out stamped as honest women. "'The Lord Chamberlain gives them a certificate of virtue. "'My Lady Bearakers, My Lady Tufto, and Mrs. Bute Crawley "'might indeed cry fie at the idea of the odious little adventurous "'curtseying before the Sovereign. "'I, for my part, look back with love and awe to that great character.' Oh, what a high and noble appreciation of gentlewomanhood there must have been in vanity fair when the revered and august prince-regent was crowned king. I saw him once at the theatre, florid of face, portly of person, covered with medals and with a rich curling head of hair. Oh, how we sang, God save him! How the house rocked! How they cheered and cried and waved handkerchiefs! Ladies wept. Mothers clasped their children. Some fainted with emotion. Yes, we saw him. Fate cannot deprive us of that. Well, there came a happy day for Mrs. Rawdon Crawley when she was admitted into the Paradise of Court.' On the appointed day, Sir Pitt and his lady, in their great family carriage, drove up to the little house in Curzon Street to the admiration of Raggles watching from his greengrocer's shop. Sir Pitt, in a glittering uniform, descended into Curzon Street." Little Rawdon stood with his face against the window, smiling to his aunt in the carriage, and presently Sir Pitt came forth from the house, leading a lady with grand feathers covered in a white shawl and holding up a train of magnificent brocade. She stepped graciously into the vehicle as if she were a princess." Rawdon followed in his old guard's uniform, which had grown woefully shabby and much too tight. The carriage joined the line of royal equipages, which was making its way down Piccadilly and St. James Street towards the old brick St. James's Palace. Becky felt as if she could bless the people out of the carriage windows. So elated was she, and so conscious of the dignified position which she had at last attained. Even our Becky had her weaknesses, and to be thought a respectable woman was her aim in life. She adopted a demeanour so grand, self-satisfied, deliberate, and imposing that it made even Lady Jane laugh. She walked into the royal apartments with a toss of the head which would have befitted an empress. Her costume was of the most elegant and brilliant description. Some ladies are by no means lovely and enticing objects at that early time of noon. A stout countess of sixty, décolleté, painted and wrinkles with rouge up to her drooping eyelids, is an edifying but not a pleasant sight. Drawing-rooms should be announced for November— or the first foggy day, or the elderly ladies of Vanity Fair should drive up enclosed litters, descend in a covered way, and make their curtsy to the sovereign under the protection of lamplight. Our beloved Rebecca had no need, however, of any such friendly shadow. Her complexion could bear any sunshine and her dress, though nowadays any lady of Vanity Fair would pronounce it to be preposterous, was brilliantly handsome in her eyes and those of the public. Even good Lady Jane was forced to acknowledge this, and own sorrowfully to herself that she was quite inferior in taste to Mrs. Becky. She did not know how much care, thought, and genius Mrs. Rawdon had bestowed upon that dress. "'Rebecca had a clever way of doing things that Lady Jane little understood. "'Lady Jane quickly spied the magnificence of Becky's brocade and the splendour of her lace. "'The brocade was an old remnant,' Becky said, "'and as for the lace, oh, it was a great bargain. She had had it these hundred years. "'My dear Mrs. Crawley, it must have cost a small fortune.' lady jane said looking down at her own lace which was not nearly so good she wanted to say that she could not afford such fine clothing but checked that speech as uncharitable and yet if lady jane had known all i think even her kindly temper would have failed her "'The fact is, when she was putting Sir Pitt's house in order, "'Mrs. Rawdon had found the lace and the brocade in old wardrobes "'and had quietly carried them home. "'And the diamonds—' "'Where in the deuce did you get the diamonds, Becky?' said her husband, "'admiring some jewels which he had never seen before "'and which sparkled on her ears and neck. "'Becky blushed a little.' Pitt Crawley blushed a little, too, and looked out of the window. The fact is, he had given her a very small portion of the brilliance, a pretty diamond clasp, which he had omitted to mention to his wife. Becky looked at her husband, and then at Sir Pitt, with an air of saucy triumph, as much as to say, "'Shall I betray you?' "'Guess,' she said to her husband.' "'Why, you silly man, where do you suppose I got them? "'All except the little clasp, which a dear friend of mine gave to me long ago. "'I hired them, to be sure, at Mr. Polonius's in Coventry Street. (laughs) "'You don't suppose that all the diamonds which go to court belong to the wearers, "'like those beautiful stones of Lady Jane's, which are far handsomer than any I have? "'They are family jewels.' said Sir Pitt, again looking uneasy. Becky's diamonds never went back to Mr. Polonius of Coventry Street, and that gentleman never applied for their restoration. They retired into an old desk, which Amelia had given her years ago, and in which Becky kept a number of useful things about which her husband knew nothing. To know nothing or little is in the nature of some husbands, "'To hide things is in the nature of how many women? "'Oh, ladies, how many of you have surreptitious milliner's bills? "'How many of you have gowns and bracelets which you dare not show, "'or which you wear, trembling and trusting that your husband "'will not know the new velvet gown from the old one? "'Thus Rawdon knew nothing about the brilliant diamonds "'which decorated his lady.' But Lord Stane, who was at court as Lord of the Powder Closet, wearing all his stars, garters, and cordons, knew whence the jewels came, and who paid for them. As he bowed over Becky, he smiled and quoted the hackneyed and beautiful lines from The Rape of the Lock about Belinda's Diamonds and many ladies round about whispered and talked, and many gentlemen nodded as they saw what marked attention the great nobleman was paying to the little adventuress. Of the interview between Rebecca and her sovereign, it does not become such a feeble pen as mine to attempt to relate. The dazzled eyes close before that magnificent idea— We back away rapidly, silently, and respectfully, making profound bows out of the august presence. This may be said, that in all London there was no more loyal heart than Becky's afterwards. The name of her king was always on her lips, and she said he was the most charming of men. She ordered a portrait of him. She had him painted in a brooch and wore it. Indeed, she amused and somewhat pestered her acquaintance with her perpetual talk about his urbanity and beauty. Who knows? Perhaps the little woman thought she might play the part of a maintenant or a pompadour, but best of all, after her presentation, was to hear her talk virtuously. She had a few female acquaintances beforehand, but after being made an honest woman, so to speak, Becky would not consort any longer with these dubious friends and cut Lady Crackenbury and Mrs. Washington White. The details of Becky's costume were in the newspapers. Feathers, diamonds, and all Lady Crackenbury read the paragraph in bitterness and told her followers about the airs which that woman was giving herself. Mrs. Bute Crawley and her young ladies in the country read the morning post and gave vent to their honest indignation. "'If you had been sandy-haired, green-eyed, and a French rope-dancer's daughter,' Mrs. Bute said to her eldest girl, "'You might have had superb diamonds, too, "'and have been presented "'at court by Lady Jane. "'But you're only a gentlewoman, "'my poor, dear child, "'with some of the best blood "'in England in your veins.' "'Thus the worthy rectoress "'consoled herself. "'A few days after "'the famous presentation, "'another great honour "'was paid to the virtuous Becky.' Lady Stain's carriage drove up to Mr. Rawdon Crawley's door, and the footman delivered a couple of cards, on which were engraven the names of the Marchioness of Stain and the Countess of Gaunt. These bits of pasteboard occupied a conspicuous place on Becky's drawing-room table. Lord, how poor Mrs. Washington White's cards sank down to the bottom of the pack!' My lord stay, coming to call a couple of hours afterwards, and looking about him, found his lady's cards already ranged as the trumps of Becky's hand. He grinned, as this old cynic always did at any naive display of human weakness. Becky came down to him presently, her hair in perfect order, her apron scarves, little Morocco slippers, and other female gimcracks arranged. She found him grinning over the cards and blushed a little. "'Thank you, Monseigneur. You see your ladies have been here. How very good of you. I couldn't come before. I was in the kitchen making a pudding.' Uh, "'I know you were. I saw you through the area railings as I drove up,' replied the old gentleman. (laughs) "'You see everything,' she replied. "'Not that, my pretty lady,' he said good-naturedly. "'You silly little fibster! "'I heard you in the room overhead, "'where I have no doubt you were putting rouge on. "'You must give some of yours to my lady Gaunt, "'whose complexion is quite preposterous.' "'Is it a crime to try and look my best when you come here?' "'answered Mrs. Rawdon plaintively, "'and she rubbed her cheek with her handkerchief "'as if to show there was no rouge at all, "'only genuine blushes. "'Well?' "'said the old gentleman. "'You are bent on becoming a fine lady. "'You pester my poor old life out to get you into the world, "'but you won't be able to hold your own there, you silly little fool. (laughs) "'You've got no money.' "'You will get us a place,' said Becky. "'You've got no money, and you want to compete with those who have. (laughs) "'You poor little earthenware pipkin. "'You want to swim down the stream along the great copper kettles. "'All women are alike.' You will go to Gaunt House. You give an old fellow no rest until you get there. But it's not half so nice as here. You'll be bored there. (laughs) I certainly am. My wife is as gay as Lady Macbeth, and my daughter's as cheerful as Regan and Goneril. I dare not sleep in my bedroom. The pictures frighten me, and I have a little brass bed in a dressing room and a little hair mattress like a monk. (laughs) Ha, ha! "'You'll be asked to dinner next week. "'How the women will bully you.' "'This was a very long speech for a man of few words, like my Lord Stane. "'At this, Brig looked up from the work-table at which he was seated, "'and gave a deep sigh. "'If you don't turn off that abominable sheepdog,' said Lord Stain, "'with a savage look over his shoulder at her, "'I will have her poisoned.' "'I always give my dog dinner from my own plate,' said Rebecca. Laughing mischievously and taking pity upon her admirer, she called to Briggs and bade her take the child out for a walk. "'I can't send her away,' Becky said after Briggs had gone in a very sad voice. Her eyes filled with tears as she spoke. "'You owe her wages, I suppose,' said Lord Stain. "'Worse than that.' said becky i have ruined her ruined her and why don't you turn her out men do that she answered bitterly women are not so bad as you last year when we were reduced to our last guinea she gave us everything she shall never leave me until we are ruined utterly ourselves which does not seem far off or until i can pay her the last farthing how much is it "'said Lord Steyne with an oath, "'and Becky, reflecting on the largeness of his wealth, "'mentioned nearly double the amount. "'Lord Steyne broke out into another brief expression of anger "'at which Rebecca held down her head. "'I could not help it. "'It was my only chance. "'I dare not tell my husband. "'He would kill me if I told him what I have done. "'I've kept it a secret from everybody but you, "'and you forced it from me.' "'Oh, what shall I do, Lord Steyne? for I am very unhappy?' He made no reply except by beating a tattoo with his hands. At last he clapped his hat on his head and flung out of the room. Rebecca did not rise from her attitude of misery until his carriage whirled away. Then she burst out laughing to herself, and sitting down to the piano, she rattled away a triumphant tune on the keys. "'That night,' there came two notes from Gaunt House, one containing an invitation from Lord and Lady Steyne to a dinner at Gaunt House next Friday, while the other enclosed a slip of grey paper bearing Lord Stane's signature and the address of Messrs. Jones, Brown, and Robinson. Bankers. Rawdon heard Becky laughing in the night. "'It was only her delight at going to Gaunt House and facing the ladies there,' she said, which amused her so. But the truth was that she was occupied with a great number of other thoughts. Should she pay off old Briggs? Should she astonish Raggles by settling his account? She turned over these thoughts on her pillow, and on the next day, when Rawdon went out to his club, Mrs. Crawley, with a veil on, whipped off in a hackney-coach to the city.' and at Mrs. Jones, Brown's, and Robinson's bank, presented a document, and said she would take a £150 in small notes and the remainder in one note. Passing through St. Paul's churchyard, she stopped and bought the handsomest black silk gown for Briggs which money could buy, and which, with a kiss and a kind speech, she presented to the simple old spinster. Then she walked to Mr. Raggle's, inquired about his children affectionately and gave him fifty pounds on account. Next she went to the liveryman from whom she hired her carriages and gratified him with a similar sum. After this Becky paid a visit upstairs to the before-mentioned desk which Amelia had given her years and years ago and which contained a number of useful and valuable little things. Here she placed the one note which the bank cashier had given her. Chapter 49 In Which We Enjoy Three Courses and a Dessert When the ladies of Gaunt House were at breakfast that morning, Lord Steyne, who normally took his chocolate in private, appeared amongst them, and a battle royal ensued about Rebecca. "'My Lady Steyne," he said, "'For your dinner on Friday, I want you, if you please, "'to write an invitation card for Colonel and Mrs. Crawley.' "'Blanche writes them,' Lady Stane said in a flutter. "'I will not write to that person,' said Lady Blanche Gaunt, "'a tall and stately lady who looked up for an instant and then down. "'It was not good to meet Lord Stane's eyes after offending him. "'Send the children out of the room. Go,' he said. The urchins, always frightened of him, retired. Their mother would have followed. "'Not you,' he said. "'You, stop. My Lady Stane, once more, will you have the goodness to go to the desk and write that card for your dinner on Friday? My lord, I will not be present at it,' Lady Blanche said. "'I will go home. I wish you would.' "'You will find the bailiffs at Bear Acres, very pleasant company, "'and I shall be freed from lending money to your relations "'and from your damned tragedy heirs. "'Who are you to give orders here? "'You have no money. "'You've got no brains. "'You are here to have children, and you have not had any. "'Gaunt's tired of you, "'and George's wife is the only person in the family "'who doesn't wish you were dead. "'Gaunt would marry again if you were. "'I wish I were.' her ladyship answered, with tears of rage in her eyes. "'You give yourself airs of virtue, while my wife, who is an immaculate saint, as everybody knows, has no objection to meeting my young friend, Mrs. Crawley. My wife knows that lies are often told about the most innocent of women. Pray, madame, shall I tell you some little anecdotes about my lady Bear Acres, your mamma?' "'You may strike me if you like, sir, or hit any cruel blow,' Lady Gaunt said. "'To see his wife and daughter suffering always put his lordship into a good humour. "'My sweet Blanche,' he said, "'I am a gentleman, and never lay my hand upon a woman, save in the way of kindness. "'I only wish to correct little faults in your character. "'You women are too proud. "'You must be meek and humble.' "'for all Lady Stay knows Mrs. Crawley is even more innocent than herself. "'Her husband's character is not good, but it is as good as Bearacre's, "'who has played a little and not paid a great deal, "'who cheated you out of your legacy and left you a pauper on my hands. "'As for Mrs. Crawley's character, I shan't demean myself "'by even hinting that it needs a defence. You will receive her with the utmost cordiality, as you will receive all persons whom I present in this house. He laughed. If I invite all Bedlam here, by God, they shall be welcome the crestfallen women had nothing for it but to obey. Lady Gaunt wrote the invitation, and she and her mother-in-law drove in person and with bitter and humiliated hearts to leave the cards which gave Mrs. Rawdon so much pleasure. There were families in London who would have sacrificed a year's income to receive such an honor. Mrs. Frederick Bullock, for instance, would have gone on her knees from Mayfair to Lombard Street if Lady Stain and Lady Gaunt had said, "'Come to us next Friday!' Severe, spotless, and beautiful, Lady Blanche Gaunt held the very highest rank in Vanity Fair." the distinguished courtesy with which lord stane treated her charmed everybody who witnessed his behaviour and caused the severest critics to admit how perfect a gentleman he was the ladies of Gaunt House called Lady Bearacres to their aid to repulse the common enemy. One of Lady Gaunt's carriages went to Hill Street for her mother, since Lady Bearacres' carriages were in the hands of the bailiffs, as was Bearacres' castle, and with all its costly pictures and furniture, the magnificent Van Dykes and Reynolds, the Lawrence portraits, and the matchless dancing niff for which Lady Bearacres had sat in her youth radiant then, but now a toothless, bald old woman, a mere rag of a former robe of state. Her lord was a lean, withered man in a greatcoat and a brutus wig, slinking about Grey's Inn, bankrupt and broken down. He had borrowed too much money from Stain to find it pleasant to meet his old comrade— Stane, whenever he wished to be merry, used jeeringly to ask Lady Gaunt why her father had not come to see her. Of the other illustrious persons whom Becky had the honour to meet on her presentation to the grand world, we shall not say much. There was His Excellency the Prince of Peter Worreden, with a long, solemn, white face, of whom Becky whispered to Lord Stane that he must be descended from a sheep.' There was Mr. John Paul Jefferson Jones, attached to the American embassy and correspondent of the New York demagogue, who, to make himself agreeable, asked Lady Stane how his dear friend George Gaunt liked Brazil. Mr. Jones wrote a full account of the dinner, which duly appeared in the demagogue. He mentioned the names and titles of all the guests. He described the ladies, the table service, the servants' costume— the dishes and wines, and the probable value of the plate. Such a dinner, he calculated, could not be dished up under fifteen or eighteen dollars per head. He was most indignant that a young and insignificant aristocrat, the Earl of Southdown, should have overtaken him in their procession to the dining-room. Just as I was stepping out to offer my hand to the very pleasing and witty Mrs. Rawdon Crawley, He wrote, The young man whisked the lady off without a word of apology. I had to bring up the rear with the colonel, the lady's husband, a stout red-faced warrior who distinguished himself at Waterloo. The colonel, on coming into this polite society, blushed like a boy of sixteen confronted with his sister's schoolfellows. It has been told before that honest Rawdon was not much used to ladies' company. He had had his time for female friendship, but that was twenty years ago, and the ladies were of a different rank and sort. Although Colonel Crawley was now forty-five, he had not met half a dozen good women besides his paragon of a wife. All except her, and his kind sister-in-law, Lady Jane, scared the worthy colonel and during his first dinner at Gaunt House he did not make a single remark except to state that the weather was very hot. Becky would have left him at home, but Virtue ordained that her husband should be by her side to protect the timid little creature on her first appearance in polite society. On her arrival, Lord Steyne stepped forward. "'Taking her hand, he greeted her with great courtesy, "'presenting her to Lady Steyne and her daughters-in-law. "'Their ladyships made three stately curtsies, "'and the elder lady gave her hand to the newcomer. "'But it was as cold and lifeless as marble.' Becky took it, however, with grateful humility, and explained that his lordship had been her father's earliest friend and patron, and that she had learned to honour the Stane family from her childhood. The fact is that Lord Stane had once purchased a couple of pictures from the late sharp, and the affectionate orphan could never forget her gratitude. Becky then curtsied to the Lady Bearacres, "'I had the pleasure of making your ladyship's acquaintance at Brussels ten years ago,' she said, in the most winning manner. "'We met at the Duchess of Richmond's Ball the night before the Battle of Waterloo. "'And I recollect your ladyship and my Lady Blanche, your daughter, "'sitting in the carriage at the inn, waiting for horses. "'I hope your ladyship's diamonds are safe.' The famous diamonds had undergone a famous seizure, about which Becky, of course, knew nothing. "'I needn't be afraid of that woman,' she thought, as Lady Bearacres exchanged terrified and angry looks with her daughter and retreated to a table.' While the potentate from the Danube made his appearance, the conversation was carried on in French, which, to the mortification of Lady Bearacres and the younger ladies, Mrs. Crawley spoke much better than they. The prince and princess of Peterwarden asked, who was that petite dame who spoke so well? Finally, "'They marched into the apartment where the banquet was served, "'and which the reader shall have the liberty of ordering himself to suit his fancy. "'But it was when the ladies were alone that Becky knew the tug of war would come. "'And then, indeed, the little woman had to acknowledge "'the correctness of Lord Steyne's caution to beware of the society of ladies above her own sphere. "'Assuredly, the greatest tyrants over women are women.' When poor little Becky went up to the fireplace where the great ladies had gathered, the great ladies marched away to a table of drawings. When Becky followed them to the table, they dropped off to the fire again. She tried to speak to one of the children, but Master George Gaunt was called away by his mamma, and the stranger was treated with such cruelty that finally Lady Stain herself pitied her and went up to speak to the friendless little woman. Lord Stane says you sing and play very beautifully, Mrs. Crawley," said her ladyship, her wan cheeks blushing. I wish you would do me the kindness to sing. I will do anything that may give pleasure to my Lord Steyne or to you, said Rebecca, sincerely grateful, and seating herself at the piano, she began to sing. She sang religious songs by Mozart, which had been early favorites of Lady Stane, and with such sweetness that the lady sat down by the piano and listened with tears in her eyes. The opposition ladies at the other end of the room kept up a loud and ceaseless buzzing and talking, but Lady Stane did not hear. She was a child again. In her convent garden, and the brief period of her happiness bloomed out once more for an hour. She started when the jarring doors were flung open, and with a loud laugh from Lord Steyne, the men entered. Lord Steyne saw at a glance what had happened, and was grateful to his wife for once. He went and spoke to her, calling her by her Christian name, so as again to bring blushes to her pale face. My wife says you have been singing like an angel, he said to Becky. The rest of that night was a great triumph for Becky. She sang so well that every one of the men came and crowded round the piano. The women, her enemies, were left quite alone, and Mr. Paul Jefferson Jones thought he had made a conquest of Lady Gaunt by going up to her ladyship and praising her delightful friend's first-rate singing.
0: Thanks for listening to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair This episode was produced by Justin Eacock, Executive Producer Moses Neimer This is the latest book in our podcast series Marilyn Lightstone Reads Other selections include Showboat, Anne of Green Gables The Age of Innocence, Pride and Prejudice and The Woman in White You can also help support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in your preferred podcast store. And while you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads.